Did you kill Susan Berman? No. Do you know who did? No, I do not. Douglas Durst was lying. It was always Mommy and Bobby against Daddy and Douglas. I always loved and loved my mother, and I would make an effort to get along with my father. Seven-year-old Bobby Durst knew that it was my father's fault. Bobby Durst did not know how or why or anything like that. But Bobby Durst knew that his father had killed his mother. I started running away. I mean, I know the rules. It just depends how they're handled. Why don't you let John tell you what questions he wants me to answer? One night I got back to the fraternity house around nine or 10, and Stuart Altman introduced me to the girl that he had picked up that afternoon. Her name was Susan Berman. Welcome back to season two of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. I'm joined by my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder. Yesterday, after months of anticipation, Robert Durst took the witness stand. As we have reported on multiple occasions, Durst's lawyers have repeatedly moved for a mistrial based on their assertion that his various health issues have rendered him unable to participate in his own defense. Contrary to these repeated assertions, Robert Durst appeared alert and focused, providing cogent testimony during the beginning of Dick DeGaron's direct examination. In this episode, we want to present an update of the highlights from his first day of testimony. Later in this episode, we'll talk with reporter Charles Bagley about what we can expect from Robert Durst in the days ahead. That's coming up after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. In his opening statement, Robert Durst's attorney, Dick DeGaron, summed up the defense narrative concisely. Bob Durst did not kill Susan Berman, and he doesn't know who did. He opened his direct examination of Durst, addressing these points one by one. Bob, did you kill Susan Berman? No. Do you know who did? No, I do not. DeGarren then asked Durst to tell the jury about his health issues. Are you hard of hearing? I am hard of hearing. You have uh, hearing aids. Do they help? I have hearing aids. Do they help? Yes. Durst gave a rundown of his various conditions, 
all of which were outlined in Dr. Klein's report. He started with hydrocephalus and concluded with the uncertain future of his catheter bag. And the catheter that you mentioned, of course, is visible to the jurors, the tube coming down from your leg and into the um, device on your wheelchair. Do you want me to hold it up? No. DeGuerin then moved on to Durst's childhood, and specifically to his memory of his mother. Before your mother died, who among your family did you favor, and who among your family did your brother Douglas favor? From what I remember as a little kid, when we were playing go fish, or uno, or frisbee, or whatever, it was always mommy and Bobby against Daddy and Douglas. I always loved and loved my mother, and I would make an effort to get along with my father. Durst testified to witnessing his mother's untimely death when she either fell or jumped from the roof of their Scarsdale home. What is your recollection of uh, that night when she died? My grandfather came into my bedroom and woke me up, walked me out into the hall, pointed out the hall window and said, look, Bobby, there's mommy on the roof. I looked out the window and there was mommy on the roof. Now my grandfather did not say, good God, there's mommy on the roof. It was just very flat. There's mommy on the roof. Wave at mommy. So I waved at mommy. Curiously, in previous versions of the story, it was his father who brought young Robert to the window to see his mother on the roof. In this trial testimony, he said it was his grandfather who did so. Durst recalled that when his brother Douglas took the stand, he testified that Robert Durst had not, and in fact could not, have witnessed their mother's death. You are aware that your brother Bob has claimed that your dad had him view your mom falling slash jumping from the roof. Are you aware of that allegation from your brother? I am aware of that allegation. And do you know, do you have first-hand knowledge of whether that allegation is true? I, I know it's not true because uh, when my uh, mother was in distress, we were brought over to my uh, aunt uncle's house nearby. And can you tell me, you are aware of the way your brother has described having seen this fall or jump, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And given the way the house was laid out and where your brother says he was, is that an accurate depiction of what happened? No, there's, there's no way from inside the house you could see where my mother fell from. Here's how Durst responded to his brother's testimony. Did you see your mother in the driveway? Yes, I saw my mother on the driveway. Yes, you know that, Your Honor. And Douglas says that I could not have seen my mother on the roof from the window in the second floor hallway. Douglas Durst was lying. Durst then described his feelings in the aftermath of his mother's tragic death. 
following your mother's death, did you blame your father? Yes. Did you start running away? Same objection, Your Honor. Yeah. Seven-year-old Bobby Durst knew that it was my father's fault. Bobby Durst did not know how or why or anything like that. But Bobby Durst knew that his father had killed his mother. I started running away. Every couple of weeks, oh, the neighborhood we lived in, there was nothing that was not a McMansion. Giant houses, all had outdoor garages. I quickly learned which houses left their garage doors open. It appears that Robert Durst may be attempting to elicit sympathy from the jury by describing his childhood as lonely and tragic. Since Durst has to rely on a tablet showing the transcription of his lawyer's questions, there were a few occasions where the defendant would continue answering a question after an objection had been sustained. To address this issue, DeGaron would raise his hand to indicate to his client when he should pause. As we have reported previously this season, while Durst's hearing is deteriorating, his mind appears to remain as sharp as ever. So I will stop you when you go on too long. Understand? I understand. I mean, I know the rules. It just depends how they're handled. <laughs> At one point, after a series of objections from the prosecution, Durst spoke up. Why don't you let John tell you what questions he wants me to answer? DeGarren ignored Durst's request that he turn over the questioning to Deputy DA John Lewin and moved on from Bob's childhood to ask him about his schooling. Durst testified, as he has in the past, about going to Lehigh and then to UCLA, where he met Susan Berman. Curiously, the story of their meeting differed slightly from what he's said in the past. Tell the jury about how you met Susan Berman. Well, after my first year at UCLA, 1966, friends of mine from New York, Stuart Altman and his younger brother, Eric, came out and visited me. The Beta Theta Pi fraternity house in Westwood had a big sign out front that said, Rooms for Rent. So the three of us rented a big room for the summer. Were you a member of Beta Theta Pi, or was did you just rent a room from them? I had nothing to do with Beta Theta Pi, just rented the room. Okay, go ahead. How did you meet Susan Berman? So one night, what we did all summer long was to hang out at the Dykstra Pool just west of UCLA's main campus, south of Sunset. I guess everybody knows that. There are a bunch of dormitories and a big recreation center. First dorm that was built was called Dykstra, D-Y-K-S-T-R-A. And we spent the summer by the pool 
trying to pick up girls. One night I got back to the fraternity house around nine or ten, and Stuart Altman introduced me to the girl that he had picked up that afternoon. Her name was Susan Berman. We will follow up on the evolution of Durst's narrative on his meeting Susan when Charlie Bagley joins us for a discussion later in the episode. Durst then told the jury how he and Susan immediately hit it off and became best friends. The only thing Stuart Altman was interested in was the fact that Susan Berman had decided that she was going to keep it until she got married. So Stuart wandered off someplace, and Susan and I stayed up all night and talked. Stephen Silverman, who testified, said that when you have a conversation with Susan Berman, you listen. Well, whatever it was, that night I was relatively talkative. We spent the whole night talking. So, what did you, uh, what did you find in common with you and Susan? Well, both of us were raised by other others than our parents. Her parents were both dead. Her father died when she was seven. Her mother died when she was twelve. My father. My mother died when I was seven. My father couldn't handle me because I kept running away and he kept sending me to see psychiatrists. The psychiatrist... Objection, motion to strike is non-responsive. Also, it's a narrative. Lewin repeatedly objected to Durst's mention of psychiatrists and explained the objections as follows. And I'm concerned. I'm secondarily concerned with the idea, and it hasn't happened for a while, and Mr. Durst wants to bring up his treatment by a psychiatrist. As the court's aware, the defense had ample opportunity, in fact, they said they were going to do it, to call a mental health expert to testify to these things. I don't know if the court is aware of it, but in the Galveston trial, the reason that they later said they did not call an expert in Galveston was because they were able to get Mr. Durst to testify about this information without objection. So my concern is that what we've got here is we've got an attempt to kind of sneak in this information by Mr. Durst without any cross-examination. In addition to he and Susan bonding over their shared loss of their parents, Durst recalled that there was something else that he and Susan had in common. We were both rich. Susan had a trust fund and paid her $2,500 a month. Susan had a Mercedes-Benz SL. That first night we met, and it got to be morning, she took me out to her car, and we drove to Ship's Restaurant on West, in Westwood. And we pretty much talked until it was lunchtime. Later in his testimony, Durst talked about another fateful meeting this time with his first wife, Kathy McCormick, which, incidentally, also involved his friend, Stuart Altman. So one weekend, Stuart called me up and said that two cute girls 
had just moved into the building where he was renting an apartment. He brought them over to my apartment and we went out to dinner. One of them was Kathy McCormick. Kathy McCormick and I got along very, very well. So tell us uh, from that very first moment, what was your impression of Kathy? She was pretty and she was interesting. We could talk for a long time. We stayed up most of the night just talking to one another. While he describes feeling an instant connection and even staying up all night talking as he had done with Susan Berman, there are a number of important distinctions. Unlike with Berman, Durst was sexually attracted to Kathy McCormick. Also, he was 28 years old and she was 19 at the time they met. And again, unlike Susan, Kathy had very little in common with Robert Durst. She had just gotten out of high school and had spent a year working for the recept as a receptionist in a dental clinic. While they came from different worlds and seemed to share so little, there was one thing, according to Durst's testimony, that the couple had in common, an appreciation for small-town living in Middlebury, Vermont. Durst painted a picture of an idyllic scene, a picturesque New England town that seemed to him as good a place as any to open a health food store. He was spending most of his time in Vermont preparing to open the store, which he would eventually call All Good Things, when he met Kathy McCormick. Kathy must have visited me probably once every three weeks for four or five months. Each time she would stay a little longer. Durst describes having a happy relationship with Kathy in the beginning. From the period of time when you first uh, met Kathy until she came to spend time with you in uh, Vermont until the time that you, she actually moved in with you in Vermont. Tell the jury how your relationship with Kathy progressed. Well, it progressed the usual way. Did you fall in love? Yeah, I, we were both in love. We both liked to be each other. Middlebury, Vermont was very quaint, easy to live in. You had to, there was not much in the way of entertainment. You had to entertain yourself. In describing a typical day, which sounds like the picture of quiet country living, Durst ends on one particularly chilling detail. A typical day, Cassie and I would walk from our downstairs in this house we had rented to the store. It was about half a mile. I'd work in the store all day and walk home. Part of the house that we rented used wood for heat. So we learned about how to cut up logs using a bow saw. As we've reported, Durst testified in his Galveston trial to using a bow saw, among other tools, to dismember Morris Black. 
you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. DeGaron also asked Durst about his relationships with his family members as an adult. He asked Durst about testimony offered by Durst's youngest brother, Thomas, regarding this incident involving a revolving door. I tried to be with my father for breakfast, and Bob joined us. Breakfast ends, and we walk uh, towards the Durst organization. I'm not going to go there, but I'm going to walk with them to the Durst organization. And Bob must have noticed my father liked to walk through office buildings, uh, even ones he didn't own, although he owned a lot. And so we come to these revolving doors. And I don't know how revolving doors work. It never occurred to me that there was something special about revolving doors. But evidently, each door section has a break. And it's, it's a rubber or cloth thing that rubs against the glass and slows the progress. So Seymour goes through the revolving door first. Then I go into the revolving door, and from behind, like a sneak, he takes his full strength, and you can't think of him this way. He was strong in those days. He took his full strength, and he shoved the glass, and I went around and around, and I fell out. Oh, my God. I fell out on the street, on my knees, and he's guffawing. It's the funniest thing he's ever seen in his entire life. An elderly gentleman had gotten into the, into the revolving door before me, I mean after me, and he also ended up on the floor, but he was on the floor inside the building, and he's shouting, idiots, idiots, like I had something to do with this. Bob is guffawing, Seymour is his usual self, walking away, who are these people, I don't know them. And I'm, you know, I, I'm listening to my brother laugh at me, he's just holding his gut. It is so funny. Here is DeGarren asking Durst the question about Thomas's testimony. You heard Tommy, your little brother, testify here that he resented you to this day for pulling a trick on him in a revolving door. You remember that event? I remember Tommy's testimony. I don't remember the incident. Tommy said, and this is when he was an adult, so I don't know how old he was then. I don't remember when he was talking about 
me ignoring him in the revolving door. It was not when he was little. He was a grown-up. DeGarren also asked Durst to describe his experience of sharing a home with his brother Douglas. Who else lived at the Katona house when you were there? When I got there, there was nobody there. But sometime that fall, my brother Douglas decided that he wanted to work in the family business. And he moved into the same house in Katona, New York, with his wife and his two children. What was the relationship between you and Douglas Durst at that time? We never liked one another. Fortunately, the house was very big, and he could have his end of it, and I could have my end of it. As he has previously stated, Durst had no interest in working in real estate. However, he showed a surprising level of introspection when talking about his decision to work in the Durst organization for the sake of his father. What was the situation with the Durst organization and your father um, in New York during that time? Well, my dad visited us probably once every couple of months and stayed overnight at the Middlebury Inn. And dad was very interested in convincing me that I should come back to New York because obviously the store was never going to make me rich. Bob, when you went into the city, did you actually go to the Durst organization from time to time to work? I did not work. Sometimes Dad would tell me that there's a such and such meeting, and would you please come and sit in the room during the meeting? And periodically, I would do that. But I would do it sort of my way. I, in Middlebury, Vermont, I would wear jeans and a work shirt. Dad convinced me. Actually, one day, when we were walking to dinner, he stopped at Brooks Brothers. Brooks Brothers was known as a store for executives. It's not like it is now, where there are Brooks Brothers in lots of shopping centers. Then there was one Brooks Brother, it was in Manhattan, in Midtown. Was there a, more or less a uniform for working at uh the Durst organization? That was it. What? So I bought a suit, and periodically I would go into the business and sit in on a meeting. I felt bad about rejecting Seymour, my dad, when I was rejecting this business which he had spent his lifetime creating for me. 
Kipling did not feel like it was for me. I felt he was doing what he loved doing, period. Nevertheless, Durst eventually returned to Manhattan to work at the Durst Organization. Durst explains that he made this move of his own volition. However, he explained that he hoped his father would see that he was not suited for this line of work and would essentially release him from his burden. Kathy uh, was living with you by then in Vermont and running the store. How did she feel about your trips to New York to work for the Durst Organization? Whenever I told Kathy that I was going to New York for several days, she would start to get sort of upset. I think she guessed what was going to happen in the future, which was that I was eventually going to give in and go to work in the nurse organization. So, Again, uh, did you want to do that? Did you want to go give up what you had in Vermont? I wanted to stay in Vermont, but I convinced myself that I should go work in the Durst organization for a couple of years, and then Dad would see that I did not like it and then I was not put at it, and it was okay with him if I did not work in the Durst organization. Durst's desire to live his life in a quaint New England village was made easier by not having to rely on the financial success of the store. It was never going to make me rich. Did that matter to you? It didn't bother me at all. Why not? Because I was making so much money from the trust income, more money came in every month than I could possibly spend. My biggest expense was paying income tax on my income. I spoke on that, I spent very little money. Well, did you, did you see the store as being a huge success or not? It was a success to me. As DeGuerin questioned Durst about his past, he also asked Bob about his knowledge of Susan Berman's whereabouts over the years, presumably to show the jury that the two friends remained close even when they lived in different cities. Just as an aside, where was Susan Berman and what was she doing while this was going on, while you were starting your store in Middlebury? Susan had this great success with her cover article about not being able to get laid. And she had stayed with City Magazine. And at some point, around 1969 or 1970, Susan decided that she wanted to write a book about her life story of growing up in Las Vegas. And she felt that in order to get the book published, she should move to New York, which is where the publishers were. 
So did Susan move to New York? I need a little background here. I, I from shortly after I got back to New York, I had taken a floor in one of my family's townhouses and in the city. And I was using that as a, when I stayed in the city. I told Susan that if she wanted to, she could move into my second bedroom. So Susan moved to New York and moved into the second bedroom in the town. New Yorkers call them brownstones. Out here they're called townhouses. She stayed there for about six months when she rented an apartment on a well-known area called Beekland Place. Next, DeGarren asked Durst about his wedding to Kathy. His response seems to anticipate questions by the prosecution about the abortion that, by most accounts, seem to radically change the course of their marriage. That gets us to 1971. In 1971, we decided we would get married. My initial reaction I wanted to make sure Kathy was aware that I did not want to have children. In the final section of the day's testimony, Durst spoke about his and Kathy's unconventional honeymoon. Now, you mentioned your honeymoon. Did you and Kathy uh, take a honeymoon? Yeah, so we got a van. What kind we of, spent a lot of time. What kind of van? What kind of van? Ford. All right. And we built all kinds of stuff in the van. We had a, a mattress and an icebox and some kind of a stove. And we took two months and drove around the country. Oh, we visited my baby brother Tommy in San Francisco. Did you? travel around the country and live in your van for a couple of months? Yes. Did you need to live in a van traveling around the country and sleep uh, by the side of the road? Absolutely not. Why did you do it? What I wanted to do. What Kathy wanted to do. What we wanted to do. And how was it? It was fun. To discuss this momentous day, in the trial of Robert Durst, we're joined by a reporter, Charlie Bagley, who's covering the case for the New York Times and for CrimeStory.com, and who was in the courtroom to witness Bob's big day. Charlie, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Charlie, what were your feelings about seeing Bob up there on the stand? You know, this is the moment that everyone has been waiting for, the jury included. Probably the first most obvious thing to, to notice is that, you know, we had heard from uh, Bob's doctor or the defense doctor uh, a week ago who was saying if Bob got on the stand, you could kill him. And if anything, Bob was just as cogent today as he was 
18 years ago in Galveston. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that everything is true or that things weren't mixed up, but I I think he started out pretty strong. And and what struck you about what he said? There were actually a couple of things that I found uh, peculiar as a stickler for detail. For one thing, we got a new version of how Bob met Susan Berman in the 1960s in Los Angeles. He introduced a new character to the drama, uh, his high school boyfriend, uh, Stuart Altman, and said it was actually Altman that had uh, met Susan Berman first, brought her back to where they were staying, and introduced her to Bob. His previous version, where he had spotted her at at the university pool, wearing a uh, white bathing suit and a white cap, uh, looked very striking with her dark hair down to her shoulders. And he went over and talked to her. That, that's the way he described it then. Was Stuart Altman even in Los Angeles at that time? Well, at some point in his first year in Los Angeles, after graduating from Lehigh, he did invite Stuart to visit. This was the same trip on which uh, Bob And Stuart went down to Tijuana to buy marijuana and got arrested and thrown in jail. As you were hearing Bob recount these stories, did at any point you think, man, he's been reading my stuff on CrimeStory.com? Well, there there are certain details that, you know, we know that Bob is a very close reader of his press clips. In fact, uh, during the the, uh, trial, he had one of his lawyers come over and ask me when I would be writing my next article. Uh, I think he was a little upset that there wasn't more press coverage. Now, these lines from newspapers, including my own articles, I got the feeling sometimes that Bob incorporates them into his narrative just because they sound right. Brittany, what struck you today about the first hours of Robert Durst's testimony? I was struck by how with it he was, you know, in spite of this litany of health issues that we've been hearing about, we got that classic Bob Durst wit, you know, that we we love so much. He took a, a dig at his brother Douglas, who he famously hates, you know, when he's talking about the Katona house, he was like, yes, we never liked each other. Unfortunately, the house was very big. And then, you know, at one point, Lewin objected, and he spoke directly to him. He said to Dick DeGaron, why don't you let John tell you what questions he wants me to answer? It was a great moment. <laughs> that was unbelievable, actually. It's like, he'll get his chance. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just you wait. <laughs> I was struck that Durst didn't really engage on the question about Thomas Durst's story about Robert tripping him in the revolving door. What did you make of that? Well, I, I actually keyed in on his last line where he said, well, he was an adult. That wasn't when we were kids as if maybe that was okay. If they were adults, they were on even ground. I thought it was odd that he remembered exactly how much he paid for the monthly rent in Vermont, but didn't remember that incident. Well, I'm not sure that he wouldn't be reluctant to own up to that. And and those kinds of cruelties and indignities were probably so commonplace for him that I actually wasn't surprised that he didn't remember that. I just took it as something that he did sort of matter of factly and he got a laugh out of it in the moment. And then he forgot about it. Whereas 
It was traumatic for Thomas, understandably. Oh, that's a good point. Charlie, Bob kept mentioning the psychiatrists that he had seen over the years, and Lewin objected every single time. But I was just wondering if you have a sense of what his strategy is there. Do you think he's going for some kind of insanity defense? Well, it's funny. We knew that Bob, at the age of uh, about eight or nine, uh, was fighting with his father and his brother so much that they decided to send him to see a psychiatrist. Bob is now saying that, you know, he was constantly going to psychiatrists. You know, the shrinks were at him trying to get inside his head. I, I'm not sure what that's all about, but um, I do think that you're right. The prosecutor, John Lewin, seems to think he's going somewhere with that, that there is a purpose to it. I think Lewin actually said what he thinks the purpose is. What Lewin said was, in this case, the defense has not presented any psychiatric testimony. But what they did in Texas was they asked a lot of questions about psychiatrists, which the prosecutors in that case never opposed. And that's how they got psychiatric evaluations and testimony in the Galveston case. Lewin wanted to make sure that that kind of stuff didn't get in that way. What what that raises for me is more generally what you guys think DeGaron's strategy is with Durst. I, I think he's sort of playing out what he essentially said in his opening statement. And and that is that Bob has been this hapless guy, more often than not, who finds himself in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he runs. I actually think, and this is just my impression, but... I sort of think that DeGaron is sort of using his appearance as a way to gain sympathy, almost like a racehorse who's on its last legs, but seems to want to race one more time. Maybe if he talks long enough, he'll be able to humanize himself for the jury. Carrie, what do you think DeGaron's strategy is here? Yeah, I'm not sure he has much of a strategy. I'm going to go out on a limb and say he's sort of just winging it. And to the degree that there is a strategy... I think it's all about creating a sense of pity for Bob, as Brittany just said. Anyway, we'll see. Well, thanks for being our eyes and ears in the courtroom, Charlie. And we look forward to having you back after the next day of testimony from Robert Durst in the trial of Robert Durst. And just a reminder, everyone, check out Charlie's three-part piece about Kathy Durst at CrimeStory.com. And also check out his multi-part stories about Robert Durst and about Susan Berman, also at CrimeStory.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Please remember that you can receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from Season 1. 
and head over to crimestory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. This episode was written and edited by yours truly, Brittany Bookbinder. It was co-produced by Alexis Bartolo and Brittany Bookbinder. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.